Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. What are you afraid of? Really didn't think it was going to come out that quickly. All right. So, right, it's, a, it's a weird question for some of us, right? Because as guys, we were raised to be emotionally constipated and to pretend that we're not afraid of anything, right? Like, I ain't afraid of nothing. I ain't, I ain't fear for breakfast. It's like, also, I've seen you scream like a cheerleader in a horror film when you see a spider. So... But like, what are you afraid of? What I want to look at, because we all have fears, right? We all have things that get under our skin and creep us out. But what I want to start with this morning is like, does anybody have something kind of weird or unusual that they are afraid of that they want to just shout out so the rest of us can be amused? Bridges. Bridges. Fantastic. I don't even know where to go with that. Yeah. Um, so like any bridge, just crossing... High bridges, okay, that's just, yeah, anything near an 18-wheeler is a little creepier. High bridges, good, okay. Anybody else got weird stuff that they're comfortable shouting out? Really surprised more of you aren't going for it after that sales pitch. Like, my, my sister married my best friend from high school, and his nickname in high school was Stone Punch, and I can testify that it was not an ironic name. He's afraid of butterflies. And I'm like, okay, so I'm going to make a list of all the things that are less harmful than butterflies. You ready for it? That's the list. <laughs> right? It's like a floating piece of colorful silk that if it lands on you, you don't even know because the breeze is stronger than it. Like the worst thing a butterfly can do to you is trigger allergies. But that's a fear, right? Any other weird fears? Anybody want to take a last shot at this thing? Speech? Speech? Bees, yep, okay, bees, yeah, they can sting you. I'm not a fan. My dad's an entomologist, so that's fun. Having all the things that you're afraid of, your dad study for a living. Do so we have fear, right? We don't just have fears, we name our fears. Acrophobia, the fear of heights. Aquaphobia, the fear of water. Claustrophobia, the fear of closed-in spaces. Agoraphobia, the fear of wide-open spaces. Those two people will never be friends because where would they hang out? Or perhaps the greatest of all human fears. I've got a picture of it here. Anatidophobia. It is the fear that somewhere a duck is watching you. <laughs> and I cannot for the life of me decide which thing I like more, that that exists or that it's common enough that we named it. Fear is one of the primary motivators of human behavior. It can drive us to action or to inaction. Fear can control us. It can consume us. It can cripple us. It plays a huge role in our lives and in the decisions that we make. So much of what we do, whether conscious or not, is a response to fear that exists in our hearts.
So what are you afraid of? All right, this is the, the last week in our series, Uncommon Sense, looking through different themes in the book of Proverbs. Next week, we have the most important event in history where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. And then after that, we jump into the study through the book of Ephesians. But for here, this week, we get to unpack, as you may have deduced, the wisdom of fear. See, we can be wise or we can be foolish with our fears, at which some part of us, we hear that we go, uh, no, fear is a bad thing. Fear is something that we overcome. I've got a shirt at home that says faith over fear. Fear, like faith, is all about what you place it in. In fact, the Bible does not treat fear as if it is an evil or a bad thing. It calls us to fear, commissions us to fear when that fear is in the right thing. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children have a refuge that is a safe place in times of crisis or storms. Our children have safety in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Fear is depicted here as a good thing. Not just as a refuge and safe place, but as a fountain of life. Fear plays a very important role in our lives. It is a very useful thing. I remember uh, when I was in high school, our youth group was really big and very connected. Our student minister was burnt out, and so we were wildly unsupervised, which when you're a teenager is a great thing, uh, not great for good choices, but great for fun. So it was a youth night that we had at the church. <laughs> we got done. Everybody goes out to the parking lot. There's a whole group of teenagers hanging out in the church parking lot. The one adult that's watching us leaves, completely unsupervised, which was awesome. And the church parking lot at the time was decorated. All the green spaces were covered with giant stacks of hay bales because it was coming up on Halloween, which if you've been in church before for a while, you know you're not allowed to talk about Halloween because that's the devil's birthday. So we don't say that. We don't do trick or treat because the evil, the witchcraft and stuff like that. So what we do is an alternative. We have trunk or treat. Totally different because we changed two letters Right? You do exactly the same thing. You dress up in the same costumes, you get the same candy, but instead of doing it from the comfort of your home, you do it in the back of your trunk of your car. Right? Because the church wants to normalize giving candy from a stranger's vehicle for children. But we didn't call it Halloween, so it's cool. Right? So we're getting decorated or getting set up for all this Halloween stuff. And at the church parking lot, there is a shopping cart. To this day, I have no idea how a shopping cart got there or why. We were miles from any grocery store or shopping center where it would make sense for one to be. But, as if by divine gift, there is a shopping cart and a group of unsupervised teenagers. So we created a game. You see, there was the church, had, what they had done to make the parking lot look nice, they took a couple of parking spaces and they built out some green space with like a tree in it, then you got a curb on all sides. And then in front of the tree, around it, you have all these stacked up hay bales. So we're like, okay. So we put one kid in the cart, two of us got on either side, we push the cart as fast as we can, and what happens is when the wheels of the cart hit the curb, the cart turns into a human catapult, and it jettisons the rider into the bales of hay. This was, super, this was the greatest game we ever had. So we're doing this for a while, but eventually 
Uh, the law of escalation has to take effect, right? It's starting to go, okay, we've done this like a thousand times. It's not fun anymore. So let's put two people in the cart. <laughs> so we push the cart. The wheels hit the curb, and immediately the cart breaks. And this is the point where well-rounded, intelligent adults make, capable of making good life choices go, hey, game's over. Time to go home. But the reason I will never believe in evolution is because Darwin's survival of the fittest seemed to completely avoid my childhood. We're like, what else has four wheels and could achieve the same effect? Like the hood of a car. That'll do it. So one guy gets in his car, he backs up, somebody else gets on the hood of the car, he accelerates, and right before he gets to the curb, slams the brake. This sounds dumb. It's actually just a lesson in applied science. Right? The law of inertia, objects in motion remain in motion unless acted upon by an outside force. Well, the car has an outside force. That is the brake system. But the person doesn't have that. So are they going to get the outside force because they're connected to the car? Or it turns out, nope. They smash into the bale of hay. It's great fun. It's so much faster than the cart. So we're like, man, we took a good game and we made it great. Let's do it again. So this time I get on the hood of the car. Buddy gets on the hood next to me. Driver backs up a little further accelerates, slams on the brakes, but this time he hits the brakes a little too soon. So rather than hitting the bales of hay vertically, as God intended, my body had time to go horizontal, and I hit the bales of hay like a human torpedo with my face. <laughs> Super pleasant, highly recommend. Top bale falls off, and I'm kind of like stunned sitting there with my face on the now top bale of hay, and apparently inertia doesn't affect people the same way so the friend that was on the car did not leave the car at the exact same time that I did. So I hit the hay, hit the bale of hay, that's, okay. <laughs> Can't tell my own story. Buddy lands on my face and then bounces off. If you have ever wondered, can straw pierce human skin? The answer is, oh yeah, real good. It's real good at that. My whole face had straw embedded through one half of it. I had pieces of straw that went through my lip, blood everywhere. I don't remember what story I told my mom, but it was not the truth. And so then people see you and like, hey, what happened to your face? I'm like, this is a long story. So here's the deal. It's Halloween. I'm just going as the Batman villain Two-Face. Because, you know, that's awesome. You know why that happened? A lack of fear. When we lack proper fear, we make very bad choices. One of the greatest weaknesses in the modern church is we don't have enough fear. Or perhaps rather, we've placed our fear in the wrong thing. Proverbs 1.28 says, Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel and despise my rebuff. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their own way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. That says those who don't fear me won't find me. Those who don't listen, who don't obey, who don't accept my correction, I will give them over to their own devices. See, those who don't fear God are those who ignore his instructions, reject his instructions, 
or they make light of his instructions by acting as if they're no big deal. It's just God's word. I can do whatever I want. Right? They live for themselves. They govern themselves. They rule themselves. It is to set ourselves up as the center of our reality, focusing on our thoughts, our ideas, our values, and our views. And God says, those who do not fear me will eat the fruit of their own way, and they will come to ruin. So again, fear of the Lord is presented as a good thing. Proverbs 16, 5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. But by steadfast love and faithfulness, iniquity is atoned for, and by the fear of the Lord, one turns away from evil. Fearing the Lord is a good thing. Fear has a good and positive role in our lives. So what's the opposite of fearing the Lord? It's arrogance. And the arrogance of humanity is to think that we get to define the terms. This is good. This is right. This is love. And people walk around and just casually say things like, well, I'm a, I'm a good person. And I just hear that, and I'm like, based on what? What measure, what standard are you using to make such a bold and audacious claim as that? What qualifications do you have? What right do you have to assert such an absurd thing as that? When did you become a divine judge capable of bestowing the definition of good or evil? But it is the arrogance of the human heart that deceives us into thinking that we get to define the terms. We get to set the expectations. We get to determine what is and what isn't. Wisdom is not avoiding fear. Wisdom is not overcoming fear. Wisdom is placing our fear in the right thing. Which leads us to the most important verse. If you were to summarize all of the book of Proverbs in a single verse, you could do it effectively in chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The starting point, the foundation, the basis from which wisdom flows is the fear of God. That's what allows us to honor God and to live well in his world. You see, what happens, church, is we, we come to Jesus, right? We surrender our life to him, and we die to our old self. We walk in a new life in him. But that it's not like who we were just magically disappears, right? The things that used to tempt us are still tempting. The struggles that we used to have are still struggles. It's not like the dude who struggled with anger management just gets up and goes, hey, I surrendered my life to Jesus. And so now, wherever I go, the clouds part and sunbeams shine on my face and birds fly around dressing me like a Disney princess. And I want to break out in song at any moment. No, but what allows us to be transformed, what changes and drives our growth and our separation from the old self, what empowers us to leave the temptations and struggles of who we were behind to walk in the newness of life with God is the fear of God. 
The fear of God empowers us. It equips us and it emboldens us to live a different life. The fear of God is what drives us to seek him. The fear of God is what brings us into relationship with him. The fear of God is what motivates and pushes us to grow and mature in that relationship with him. Because fear will always be a primary motivator in our lives. And it, and it flows into every arena of who you are. How you treat your spouse. How you talk. How you behave at work. What you do with the time and the resources God has entrusted to you. How you raise your kids and the values and the system that you try to give and pass on to them. They're all influenced by our fears. In fact, most of the decisions that we make, consciously or not, will be dictated by the greatest fear that rules our hearts. Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil. But we live in a world where we are pressured not just to tolerate evil, but to celebrate it under the false flag of love and inclusiveness. We getting into it now. (laughs) Proverbs 29, verse 25. The fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. See, the greatest fear that has power over us, it's not a cute thing that we give a pho- call a phobia, right? It's not like, you know, the fear of spiders. Anybody know what that's called? That's a made-up word. It's called common sense. <laughs> it's not a made-up word. I was just teasing. But that's not the thing that has the most power over us. See, the two greatest fears that battle for control of our hearts are the fear of God and the fear of man. And what we do with the gospel, what we do with the mission of Jesus, the way we obey him, seek him, follow him, and apply his instructions to our lives will be determined by which fear holds greater sway in our hearts. And the pressure of the world around us is to replace the fear of God with the fear of man. And the world uses these arguments that sound right to lead us down paths that aren't. I'll say this, well, like, the Bible's written a long time ago. We need to modernize the language. We need to update and get with the times. We need to change. The church needs to change how it approaches things so that it can be inclusive of more people. Look, there's truth to that. The church is meant to be inclusive. Look at the Holy Spirit's work in the book of Acts. One of his primary roles is to tear down the barriers that man builds to define. We put up all these walls and say this and this and this make us different. And the Holy Spirit just comes through like a wrecking ball and says, nope. Because the kingdom of God is for all people. Not for one specific nation. The kingdom of God is for all people. And then you look at the ministry of Jesus. right? Which is a really good standard to base how we do things now. Jesus spends a lot of his time with tax collectors, sinners, and prostitutes. So what happens is, yes, that sounds right. We should be more inclusive. It sounds good. But what it is, 
Man, is this a big old chunk of truth wrapped in a burrito of deception? Because here's the thing. Every time in the Bible, when people caught up in their sin come to Jesus, it is they, not Jesus, who walk away changed. So the idea that we need to change Jesus, change his laws, change his commands, change his instructions to make him more accessible to people, it's the actual opposite of what we're here to do. See, the church is meant to be open. Praise God and amen. It's meant to be open to sinners because if it wasn't, this would be a big empty building. The church is supposed to be a safe place where sinners can come in their brokenness and in their sin without fear of being judged or criticized or condemned by the religious people who forgot that they're sinners too. Again, look at Jesus. Every interaction that Jesus has with sinful people in the Gospels. He is patient. He is gentle. He is loving. And he is absolutely gracious towards them. The church exists to love, to care for, and to minister to sinners. Not to support their sin. See, the gospel of Jesus is simultaneously radically inclusive and radically exclusive. It is inclusive in that all can come. Age, gender, race, background, history, life choices, mistakes that you've made, things that you've done, lifestyle that you've chosen to live. None of that matters. All are invited to Jesus. All can come to Jesus because Jesus is for all people. Without exception. There's no person like, yeah, you're kind of disqualified because, you know. No, everyone can come to Jesus, but Jesus is radically exclusive in that only those who come to him, only those who surrender to him, only those who lay aside their old life, walk away from who they were and live the new life in him will receive the life and the grace that he gives. So it is not our job to condemn sin. It is not our job to, to condone sin and when we do, we've missed the point of the gospel. John chapter 7. Jesus is teaching in the temple. And the religious leaders, they bring him this woman caught in adultery. They throw her at his feet, interrupting his sermon, which is rude. And they're like, hey, she's caught in adultery. The law says we kill her by stoning. What do you say? And Jesus looks at them and he says, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And one by one, they leave because they get it. Until finally Jesus is standing alone with this woman. And he says, where are those who came to condemn you? And she says, well, they've gone. And this is the perfect understanding. The way in which every ministry and Christian life should be modeled off of his response to this woman. Neither do I condemn you. Go and leave your life of sin. Jesus does not condemn her. He does not condone her sin. He commissions her to leave the sin behind. Our job, church, is to lead people away from their sin and to Jesus, just as we strive to walk away from our sin to Jesus. 
And we do so by walking in truth and love. Most important word in that sentence, and. You get the truth without the love, and you've neglected the character of Jesus. You get the love without the truth, and you've neglected the, the nature of Jesus. Hold on, man. God is love. Right? That's one of these things. We hear that all the time. In fact, you're more likely to hear that from someone who doesn't follow Jesus than you are from someone who does. Because this is the greatest justification the world uses for sexual sin, disobedience to God, and ignoring all of his instructions. Right? We don't need to get on all that. I don't go to church. I don't read my Bible. I don't want to have a relationship with God, really, because it doesn't really matter. It's too complicated. Let's just keep it simple. Right? It's all about love. Right? Because God is love. Chunk of truth, burrito of deception. Don't eat it. The truth, God is love, yes. Love is not God. God is truth, so he defines, God is love, so God defines love. God sets the terms of love, not us. Love is what God says it is, not what we say it is. See, we live in a world that has replaced the fear of God with the fear of man. And it is becoming increasingly common for us to buy into it, for us to get caught up in it. And church, the reason that we don't fear God enough is because we fear man too much. You're too afraid of being rejected, mocked, disapproved of, labeled critically, shunned, and outcast. We believe too much about what other people say about us and not enough about what God says of us. And so the false gospel of love and unconditional inclusiveness is built on the fear of man. And we turn to it and we give into it because by nature we are more social phobic than we are God phobic. The fear of God is what empowers us to obey God, even when what we're called to do goes against our own desire or thought. Jesus calls us to speak the truth in love. Part of the reason the world hates us is because we stand with Jesus. Part of the reason they hate us is because we do this very poorly a lot of times. We do not have a good track record of balancing these two things. So yes, church, we love people by telling them the truth, but it is okay to be compassionate about that. It is okay to be understanding of that. It is okay to acknowledge to a person who is trapped in their sin that walking away from that sin and dying to that sin that they don't even recognize the problem of yet is hard. It's okay to tell them it's not fair because the truth is there are people who the thing that they have to die to is much harder than what Jesus called you to die to. It's okay to say it's not fair, but it's right. The fear of the Lord is what drives our obedience. It's what drives our faithfulness, even in the face of rejection, persecution, and death. But when the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it's not talking about terror. 
like an immobilizing, crippling fear. When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it's talking about awe and reverence. It's talking about viewing God in the authority and the power that he has. It's talking about treating him with respect and honor by recognizing who he is and his value and his uniqueness and holiness in this world. When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it is synonymous with following him. It is to submit ourselves to him, to surrender our lives to him, and to live for him in worship in all that we do. The fear of the Lord in Scripture is synonymous with a life-transforming faith in the Lord. To fear the Lord is for his opinion and his approval to become the only thing that our hearts desire. And I can tell you, there is nothing more freeing than this. When I first got into ministry, I was 21. I was a lead pastor of a church. At 21, it was a small church. No idea what I'm doing. Hadn't even graduated Bible college yet. And I got to preach the gospel every week on Sunday and Wednesday night. And I was a people pleaser. I wanted people's approval. I needed the validation that came from their approval. And so I agonized over every sentence, every word, every thought that I would present because what if they didn't like it? What if they rejected me because I said something they didn't like? What happens when the Bible says something they don't like and I got to be the guy that tells them? Like, this is terrible. And so I walked around for years with this weight of trying to please both God and people, trying to satisfy them and be faithful to him. And it was crippling. And it got to a point where I was so broken down by that weight. I'm like, I can't do this for another year. I'm, I'm out. I'll go wait tables for the rest of my life. Like, I cannot do this. And then I was listening to a sermon, and the guy references passage. I think it's in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, judge for yourselves whether I'm trying to please men. Because if I'm trying to please men, it's impossible for me to please God. And the Holy Spirit just grabbed a big old neon sign and smacked me in the back of the head with it and says, that's you, doofus. I'm like, okay. And all of a sudden, I was like, okay, you're right. Like, this is the thing that I've been doing wrong. I need to live for God's approval. I need to live for his opinion. I need to live for him, focusing on him, not what other people say and do. Because what they say about me doesn't matter if what he says about me is right. And this weight fell off of my shoulders. And for the first time in my ministry, I experienced joy and freedom in doing what God called me to do because I was doing it for him, not for other people. When your fear of God rests in your heart, the fear of man loses its power over you. And you will experience a freedom unlike anything you have ever known. You see, the fear of the Lord is where wisdom begins. It is not, however, where wisdom ends. 1 John 4, 17. By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, 
But perfect love casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment. Whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Wisdom begins with the fear of God. But as wisdom matures, it changes. When wisdom reaches maturity in your life, you will love what God loves. You will hate what God hates. You will stand where God stands and you will shun what God shuns. That in the beginning, that, that obedience, it comes from a place of respect and honor. It comes from a place of fear. We do what God tells us to do because we're afraid of what happens if we don't. But the more we spend time with Jesus, the more we experience his love and his grace, the more that motivation shifts into something else. It's not that that awe and reverence goes away, but rather that it is enhanced. Think of it like this. The fear of the Lord is a seed that you plant into the depths of your heart. And that seed grows into the tree of faithfulness and obedience to God. And when that tree reaches maturity, it produces fruit. And as soon as a tree produces fruit, you stop talking about the tree and you start talking about the fruit. And all of a sudden, the relationship that you had with him becomes sweeter and more satisfying because you have this new and incredible element that gets added to it. You have this new thing, this fruit that is the love of God. And now what motivates your obedience is not fear, but love. What motivates your pursuit and your growing in him is not fear, but love. And in that, you have a confidence and an assurance that nothing in this world could ever offer. As Paul says in Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, through Jesus, the fear that we have for God is transformed into a love for God, so we have nothing left to fear. We don't have to worry about what the world says about us because we know what God says about us. We don't have to be afraid of what they do to us because we know what he has done for us. And that fear that can cripple us and hold us down loses all power over us. And we are set free in the love of God to live for God even when what God is calling us to puts us at odds with the world around us. Even if we have to stand alone against the entire world that is against us because of what we believe, we can do so with joy because the love of God has grown to maturity in us. And that love, it can never be taken. There is no force, no power, nothing in all of existence that can take the love that God has for you from you. Because what Jesus gives, he will not take away. What greater thing for our fear of shame and guilt and punishment to grow into a love and longing that is assured for us, not by our work, but by Jesus' death and resurrection for us. You don't need to be confident in yourself. You don't need to be assured of yourself. Just be assured of him. Fear of the Lord is where we begin.
love of the Lord is where we experience the fullness of the life that he has. The love of the Lord which he makes visible to us through his death and through his resurrection for us. When we take communion, we're going to take this together in just a minute. We take this as a reminder to ourselves of the confidence that we have in him of the life that we have in him because the God who did this for you is not going to let you go. He's not going to lose you. He's not going to treat you as the person that you were because this covers all of that. And in him, we are made new. So let's take the bread together. We all come from different places. We have different pasts. We all have things in our past that we're ashamed of. Mistakes that we've made. Things that we don't know how to let go of. Right, probably some of you can say, think of the thing that you just, you can't forgive yourself for, that you can't get out of your own head that you did. You probably think of it like three seconds, right? Here's how you let it go. Here's how you forget it. Here's how you move on from that because that thing doesn't define you. That thing doesn't have power over you. It doesn't have power over you because Jesus covered it. Jesus paid for it. Jesus, well, Jesus washed it away with his blood. Let's take communion together. Heavenly Father, may our fear of you never be overshadowed by our fear of the world around us. May we never get caught up in the temptation to give in to the pressures of a world that is against you, but that our fear of you and our love for you would free us from all the guilt and the shame, from all the fear and the doubt that we would walk in confidence with you as shining examples of your love and your grace, not afraid of truth, but never lacking in that unfathomable love that you share. May our hearts grow every day towards you. May our lives look more like you. God, through us, do a great work in your world that you might transform not just our lives but the lives of those around us. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for grace. Amen.